He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately she stood up and walked around the room. She was 12 years old. Those who had seen it were overwhelmed with amazement. He gave them strict orders not to tell anyone about this and told them to give her something to eat. Then Jesus went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people who heard him were amazed at his teaching. And they asked each other, Who is this? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went round teaching from village to village. Calling the disciples to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing with you for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if anyone will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. The disciples went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this because Jesus' name had become widely known. Many people were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. Still others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. For Herod had himself given orders to have John arrested. He had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Because of this, Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Whenever Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask for, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. 
She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? She replied, The head of John the Baptist. At once she hurried into the king with this request. I want you to give me, right now, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. At this the king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went out, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about this, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to his disciples, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. Whenever Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day. The disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They replied, That would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? he asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Jesus told his disciples to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they did so. He also divided the two fish among them all. The people all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining on the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. 
He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed over into the boat with them, and the wind died down. The disciples were completely astonished, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Genesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever Jesus went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Thank you, Philip. What a gift. When I decided to do Mark's gospel, I had no idea we had that in the congregation. And uh, it's wonderful to hear a long passage read in that way. Uh, I don't take it for granted, Philip, and we can assure you and Heather this week, as Heather has three more days of radiotherapy, that you're in our prayers and our love at this time. But what a chapter. What a chapter. Where do you start on a Monday morning when you shouldn't be starting on a Monday morning? You're saying it's your day off, Stockman. Well, you have to read it and get it into your head and start thinking about it. And as I read this chapter, I thought, my word, it just, and actually Philip was ahead of the game because starting it at the end of chapter five is the right thing to do because we find at the end of chapter five that Jairus' daughter has just been raised from the dead. You can see the disciples going, well, we're at the top of the roller coaster and everything we can see out across. Well, if we want to take Port Rush's roller coaster as a roller coaster, you can see out across the sea there and, we're, and then suddenly they're diving back down again because they go home full of this enthusiasm and this divine inspiration that Jesus has given them and his own people just dismiss him. Carpenter's son. Sure, his sisters are here. He's James's brother. What would we be thinking? And there's so little faith around that he can do nothing. From the high of Jairus' daughter to being rejected in his hometown. And then he sends out the 12. And suddenly, and in listening to Philip doing it the way Philip does it this morning, did you see that almost huge chasm between the end of John the Baptist's story and the continuing story of the 12 coming back after they've been sent out. What on earth is John the Baptist's story doing in the middle of this? I put up on my Facebook late last night the erotic, murderous thriller of political intrigue in a woman scorned. Good title for a sermon. And it seems to be what's going on here in the middle of a chapter which seems to be about reaching out with the gospel. What on earth is John the Baptist's flashback story, because that's what it is, doing in the middle of this? Because he comes back out of that again with these other stories of the disciples losing a bit of faith and then arriving in strange territory in Genesa and everybody flocking to him, wanting to be healed with a great sense of the divine inspiration of Jesus. There's a lot in here. And to unpack it, 
I tried to do it in two ways. As I was reading the story a few times over and over, um, and what I've done with Mark is I haven't gone on to the next chapter at any stage because I don't want to preempt. I want to kind of uh, sort of stay where we are and go through it as it might have been as it's written. Uh, but as I'm reading the story uh, here, I'm thinking, look, chapter 9, I'm thinking that moment that we talked to the children about where Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say that, who do the crowds say that I am, is the first question. And if this had been written in the disciples' time, and if they'd done it in the house group that week, they actually, what they are asked at in chapter 9, they answer some of the things that John the Baptist was thinking. They almost lifted off the page there. Oh, is it John, or what Herod was thinking rather, is it John the Baptist back again from the dead, or is it one of the prophets of old? That's what Herod, that's what Herod says in this middle of this chapter, and it's also what the disciples say when they're asked what the crowds thought about Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus turns to them and says, yeah, the crowds. But what about you? Sims, what about you? Vanderlinde, what about you? Sterling, what about you? Livingston, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And that seems to be the question that's run right through this chapter. All the various different opinions of who people thought Jesus was and the consequences of that belief. In Luke chapter 9, we find that Jesus goes on when they say that he's the Christ to say that he's going to have to suffer many things. In Mark chapter 6, as Philip had just recited to us, we find out that John the Baptist murder, is murdered by Herod. So we find the cost that Jesus is talking about for himself is right here in the cost it was for John the Baptist to believe such things. Who do we say that he is? Somebody has said, Tozer said, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. I guess we could put for God the Father, Jesus the Son. What we think about Jesus is the most important thing about us. We don't think he's anybody but the carpenter's son. And in fact, the implications for what goes on around that. If we believe when he comes off the boat that if we can just touch him, he'll heal us. It will affect what goes on around that. And then we have the John, the Baptist, and Herod story, which seems to say to me that the personal stuff that goes on has national implications. The people who say we have a private faith, but we don't take it publicly, how does that work? How does that work? Because we shouldn't be going out to vote in May for the person that's going to do us the best. We should be going out in May to vote for the person that's going to do the entire country the best. We don't take our personal, we've sacrificed everything for the kingdom of God, and then when it comes to a national issue, sideline it and become selfish again. The implications that we have for our personal piety has to be with national implications. And it was with John the Baptist. He was trying to talk about the law. He was trying to talk about what God's will was. Herod marries the wrong woman in the eyes of the law, and he had to stand up for that. 
And in standing up for that, eventually, through all this intrigue, through what would be an amazing movie, can't understand why it's not a blockbuster, he literally is executed. And his head arrives in on a silver plate. The cost of the decision you make about who Jesus is. So how does that affect us? Well, a number of us were away yesterday morning thinking about the future, session, development team leaders. And we had a really interesting morning, I think. And I've been here five months. doesn't seem to me to be very long, but it does seem long enough to feel part of you. But it's getting to that point where you're asking a few questions. You're getting impatient. What does the priest think? Or the leader of the church, maybe more accurately. What are you going to tell us? And I don't think it's um, being out of order to to share one question that that came out of a committee meeting the other week where Alec asked me a wonderfully, wonderfully provocative question, a real important question for all of us. He He said to me, I think, specifically, but who's going to be here in 20 years? Who's going to be living in these streets? What's the church going to be surrounded by? And it's a question I've been thinking about for a year because when um, Ian sent me the spec for Fitzroy and I looked at it, actually, numbers-wise, it didn't impress very much. The first question I thought was, will they still be there in 10 years? And am I going to leave a job that I really love to go to a church that's going to close in the next 10 years. I don't want to do that. And then as the weeks and the months developed, and as I started to meet some of you accidentally or by providence, or as I started to investigate who you are, which was not at all accidental or by providence, I started to realize that the numbers, the statistics, were actually wrong. Because what's in the pew And what's in the fellowship is incredibly strong. And I guess for Janice and I, when we came to this point where we had to decide, are we going to sacrifice because sacrifice we have to come to Fitzroy? We're only going to come because we believe that there is a calling for this church and we want to be a part of it. And so when Alec asked the question, what's going to be around here in 20 years? I don't know. What's going to be to one side of us? But I do know this. There's still going to be a city centre. And it's very possible that within those next 10 or 20 years that we might be the only Presbyterian, if not the only church, between here and the city centre. That we might be the city centre church. We can be that And we can take the challenge of being that if we look at this chapter and we ask ourselves honestly, who do we think Jesus is? Do we have the faith to believe that we can make an impression that will get to the ears of the very king, the government? Can we disturb the nation from a little building a wee bit up the road? Because it's interesting that John the Baptist story comes not when Jesus has done something, but when the disciples are out doing something. 
And it seems to me that we need to say, yes, we are going to be the light and the salt of this city. Nick Kiev, who we started this with, a strange man to start it with. He's a sort of a Australian Gothic hedonist early days, very spiritual of later days, but quite Old Testament. He wrote an introduction to Mark's gospel and suggests that all Jesus' opposition comes because Jesus' divine inspiration was cancelled out by rational thinking. They couldn't get the faith dynamic. They couldn't see transcendence. And so who is going to be here in 20 years? Rationally? And sure, does society pay less and less attention to the church? Rationally? So are we up for the battle? Are we going to believe? Are we going to take Jesus seriously? Are we going to commit? Not as Brent talks about quite a lot as a social club, like the golf club yesterday or the badminton club this week or the tennis club, where we run a very good organization and we've got our friends together and we have good time with our friends and we have our committee meetings and our board meetings and we make sure that everything runs smoothly, but where we are going to disturb the very center of power from what seems maybe today rationally as the edges of power. And in this entire way through Mark's gospel, we've seen how it was the fringes that Jesus started in and how it was the center that he started to disturb and shake. I'm going to unpack this a lot more on Wednesday night. Once, not record it, not in print. You decide. But I want to ask you today, are we going to be like what happened to me in Ballycastle a few weeks ago? I was in the magazine shop and I was checking out Q Magazine or Mojo or whatever one it was and I was standing there flicking through it to see whether I should buy it and this woman came in and asked when the mass services were. It was Easter, it was probably the Wednesday before Good Friday. And the girls in the shop looked at each other and said, no sorry, no idea. And the woman left and the conversation continued. And they were saying, oh, I, I don't bother anymore as long as the children are all right and they're not doing anybody harm. I'm sure, what does it matter about any of that kind of stuff? And I'll, I'll not be there myself at the weekend. Aye, I'm Anglican and oh, I'm president. Aye, but sure, what's the point? Sure, we're living a good life. And I thought to myself, this Jesus that we're unpacking in Mark's gospel, why have they never had the opportunity to be to be inspired by this man who was a revolutionary who came to make a difference not only in their personal lives but in the life of the nation and the life of the world. This is not an issue of whether we do right things or do wrong things. This is an issue of whether we live the shalom life that was originally designed that we might live or as Desi takes us in his book from Eden to the New Jerusalem, the building of this city that God has his plan for where life would be the kingdom with not Herod in control but with the Jesus we've worshipped today in control the way it was originally meant to be. Are we up for it? Do we want people to be walking down these streets saying oh there's a church there 
Oh, I'm sure that church used to be open, but I don't see it open very much these days. Mind you, I'm not in on a Sunday, so I don't really know. Maybe they're open on a Sunday. I never bother going myself anymore. Is that how we want to leave it? Or do we want to get on board and say, Fitzroy Presbyterian? Not depending on our own ideas, but acknowledging God, trusting in God, and being led in to the challenging, inspirational vocation of being Jesus' church in Belfast City to be a witness to his name. There's different faiths throughout Mark. If we can find one that's prepared to be as costly as John the Baptist's was, then I believe we can shake the very centers of power. Let us pray. Our God, we come, and to be honest, this morning, maybe we're not flying in wings like eagles. We're maybe crawling along, looking for the next place to take a spiritual rest because we're struggling. We pray that whatever way our faith is, Lord, that the divine inspiration of who Jesus is, this Jesus that we've been meeting, not in the pages of scriptures, but in the dynamic way that Philip has read many of these scriptures to us, in this true story of this word become flesh, that we might become inspired and that our imaginations might be fired that we might live to bring this kingdom in the center of Belfast as it is in heaven. Lord, help us to search our souls and to ask ourselves how much are we prepared to commit what our faith really believes in Jesus' name. Amen.